Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. By May 1945, American and Japanese forces were slogging hard at each other on the island of Okinawa. The war in the Pacific was inching towards its final conclusion and the bombs which would eventually bring the war to an end were still only a couple of months away and the eyes of the world were on that small island a little over 300 miles from the Japanese mainland. Meanwhile, two and a half thousand miles away, Australian troops were landing at Tarakan on the island of Borneo, kicking off the Borneo campaign. The objective of the campaign was to evict the remaining Japanese forces, capture the oil fields, secure the airfields and prepare Borneo as a base for future operations against Japan into 1946. That was the stated objective anyway. But despite the losses sustained on both sides, the war ended about three months later and those objectives were never needed. So, was the Borneo campaign a waste of time and lives? With the main fighting now being conducted on Japan's doorstep, why was so much effort being put into capturing an island thousands of miles to the south? Were the Australians just being kept busy while MacArthur and his Americans hoarded all the glory? These are the questions which have been bouncing around since late 1945. There's no way I can provide an answer to that where many smarter heads than mine have failed. But I'll present the details of the campaign, and you, dear listener, can draw your own conclusions. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back to part one of what will most likely be a two-part episode on the Borneo campaign. So just something I need to catch up on before we go any further. By now you've probably realised that the technical interweb side of things is not my strong point. Early on in this podcast I set up an iTunes account and all that so that I could keep track of comments and respond accordingly. Then I promptly forgot all about it. It was only about a month ago that I remembered, so it only took a year, which when you've got a brain that operates as quickly as Windows 95, it's not a bad effort. So I'll take this opportunity to thank everyone who has made encouraging comments over the past year and I will endeavour to keep on top of this going forward. With that in mind, on the road, if that is your real name, thank you for your comment, and I will certainly be doing more episodes on World War I in the very near future. Not this time though. This time, we're in World War II, in Borneo. Also, up to this point in the podcast, I've been using a very technical recording process, known in the business as Voice Recorder Android App on your mobile phone. It's a very complicated sort of a setup, and you probably wouldn't understand, it's a bit too technical really. And while it has done a reasonable job, it has had some drawbacks, particularly from a production point of view. So I splashed out and bought a flash new recording device. Hopefully you won't notice any real difference, but if it does sound a bit different to my normal episodes, then that is why. With luck, after 30 seconds you won't know the difference anyway. It's always a challenge when you are trying to get to the heart of any historical event, because we have years and decades and sometimes centuries of extra information at our fingertips. Historians over the years have dissected and redissected the events, viewed them from a hundred different angles, and weighed up their impact on subsequent events. Take the Roman invasion of Britain, for example. It seemed like a good idea at the time. 
lob over from Gaul, knock a few Britannic heads together and help yourself to the resources of a cold, damp island full of pasty white tribespeople. No doubt it did provide Rome with mineral resources for a few hundred years, but it also required huge amounts of manpower and resources to keep the joint secure. Would the Roman Empire have been better served and more able to fend off the Visigoths etc if they weren't maintaining a presence in Britain? It probably made no difference at all to be honest, but with the benefit of hindsight you could probably make that argument. But that argument is beside the point, isn't it? Because when the Romans were standing around Gaul, eyeing off Britannia, they didn't have the benefit of all that hindsight. They were probably thinking that the Roman Empire is invincible, it'll last forever, and so why not add a bit more to it? The trick for anyone who dabbles in things historic is to cut through the subsequent years of knowledge and view events through the eyes of the people who were there, having to make decisions based on the information that was available at the time. I've attempted to do this with the Borneo campaign, but I still can't find any real justification for it. So if that becomes apparent throughout this episode, I apologise. There is no doubt that the Australians fought well throughout the major battles of the campaign, and so I don't wish to detract from their efforts. But suffice to say, in my own humble, non-expert opinion, they shouldn't have been there, and they certainly shouldn't have been getting killed there. So having got that off my chest, let's get into the story of the Australians at Borneo. You may find it helpful to check out the map on the website to follow where things are happening. It's a copy of the map used by Allied intelligence staff to estimate the Japanese dispositions prior to the landings. The attack to liberate Borneo from Japanese possession was the last major Allied operation in the southwest Pacific. The land operations were under the command of Lieutenant General Leslie Morsehead, veteran of the Gallipoli campaign, heroic commander of the defence of Tobruk, and, what was no doubt his most treasured achievement, being the subject of episode 17 of the Australian Military History Podcast. If you haven't checked that one out, I highly recommend it. Opposing Morshead in the northern area of operations was Vice Admiral Michiaki Kamada of the Imperial Japanese Navy, and in the south and east was Lieutenant General Masaya Baba of the 37th Army of the Imperial Japanese Army, totalling about 32,000 troops, but only 15,000 of which were combat troops. At the outbreak of World War II, Borneo was divided into two main areas, British Borneo and Dutch Borneo, but around 200 indigenous tribal groups covered the island and were known as Dayak tribesmen. The Dayaks would play important roles during the coming operations. With the Americans bungled out of the Philippines, the Japanese soon turned their eyes to Borneo, and by the end of December, less than a month after Pearl Harbor, the island was in Japanese hands. Over the following years, the Japanese ruled the island with their infamous brutality, most notably culminating in the Sandakan death marches, which we'll cover in a later episode on POWs. Allied guerrilla operations were conducted throughout the occupation, monitoring Japanese troop and naval movements throughout the region. But now, in 1945, with the Japanese forces elsewhere in the Pacific being forced back to the islands south of Japan, it was decided to retake Borneo from the occupiers. Three main landings were conducted, at Tarakan, at Balakpapan on the southeastern coast, and on the island of Labon on the northern end of the Bay of Brunei. Together, the landings were known as Operation Oboe. Each landing was its own battle, so I'll cover each of them individually and then try to tie it all together at the end. First up was Tarakan, and I advise you to maybe head over to the website to check out the map to get your bearings. But for those who can't, I'll give a brief overview of the island. If you can imagine a bit of a right angle triangle, with the point in the south and the base in the vertical side forming a 90 degree corner on the northeastern side. Kind of like Tasmania with the east coast chopped off. The landings would take place on the southwestern side of the island, about a quarter of the way up. Link gas is to the right of the landing beaches, 
Tarakan Township is further inland to the left of the landings. The airfield is about halfway up the west coast, with Mount Appy inland from the airfield. The Uata oil fields are to the north of Mount Appy, close enough to the centre of the whole island. Got it? Righto, let's get into it. On 1st of May 1945, Oboe-1 was launched. This was an amphibious landing on a small island a bit over a mile off the coast of Borneo called Tarakan. Tarakan Island had an airstrip on it, which it was thought would be used to support subsequent landings on Borneo. It also held the important Dejota oil fields, although the Japanese defenders had been forewarned of the impending attack and the oil fields were ordered to be destroyed on the 15th of April. The Japanese knew the attack was coming, as a transmission from the Chinese army to either Australian headquarters or to MacArthur had been intercepted. Not that it made any real difference how they found out about it, it was more of a confirmation of what the Japanese had already decided was inevitable. Even before the message was intercepted, Japanese preparations to meet the invasion were well advanced. From the 12th of April, nearly three weeks prior to the landing, an aerial bombardment was undertaken by RAAF and US aircraft, targeting Japanese shipping, airfields and obstacles from around the landing beaches. So if the Japanese didn't already know the attack was coming, they knew now. The assault was to be made by the 26th Brigade under the command of Brigadier Whitehead. The 26th consisted of the 2nd 23rd, 2nd 24th and 2nd 48th Battalions, primarily from Victoria and South Australia. On the day before the infantry landing, a battery was set up on the nearby Sadao Island to provide direct fire support to cover engineers while they cleared any obstacles not already destroyed by the aerial bombardment. The clearing operation went reasonably smoothly on Green Beach, but on Yellow Beach and Red Beach there were issues. On Yellow Beach there was about 50 yards of thick, glutinous mud between the landing point and the first obstacles. When Lance Sergeant Nixon waded ashore, the matches and fuses he was carrying got soaked and so his charges couldn't be fired. His only option was to continue onto firmer ground, then head down the beach under fire to join up with another party of engineers to obtain fresh fuses and matches. Then he headed back along the beach, still under fire, and returned to finally set off his charges and clear that part of the landing zone for the landing craft to come in on high tide. On Red Beach in the early afternoon, things were even tougher. The mud was even thicker and more difficult to move through. The smoke barrage from Sadao Island helped conceal them from the enemy, but the Japanese were still firing into the smoke in the hope of hitting someone. To get through the mud and to avoid Japanese fire, the engineers lay flat on the mud and dragged themselves forward using lines which had been laid during a previous attempt. Despite being at it most of the day, with the attention of the Japanese, there was not a single casualty among the engineers, and all landing lanes except one had been cleared and marked. The main convoy was off the southwest coast of Tarakan before dawn the following day, the 1st of May. The 2nd 48th Diarist described the naval barrage which preceded the troops, quote, the beach appeared to be an inferno and was continually aflame from the crimson flashes of bursting bombs and shells. End quote. Now I'm sure we've all seen archival footage or Hollywood depictions of amphibious landings where machine gun bullets are whipping up the sand, soldiers are falling left, right and centre and generalised chaos and confusion reigns. Not so at Tarakan. The landings were carried out efficiently and largely unopposed. The pioneer units had cleared the obstacles and from the 2nd 48th Battalion Diarist again, quote, the landing continued very smoothly, and as the following waves arrived, they were directed to their concentration areas. The landing had been practically a dry one, and was a very pleasant surprise. By fairly early in the day, both the 2nd 24th and the 2nd 48th had secured their first objectives. The 2nd 23rd had a harder time. Their landing craft came up against an embankment, and they had to disembark into the same mud which had caused the issues for the engineers the previous day. This slowed down the landing, and resulted in congestion at the landing zones. They eventually sorted themselves out, 
but as they pushed forward to their objective, the Linka Spur, the Japanese resistance stiffened. On the left flank, Major Isel led his company along a feature known as the Roach. The undergrowth was so thick that a track had to be cut by the leading troops with machetes. When they reached the top of the hill, they came under fire from a Japanese position, and Isel, Lieutenant Enderby and four others were hit. Captain Simmons took command, and by 6pm the position was cleared with 15 enemy dead found around the feature. C Company patrolled the road leading to Link Gas through about 500 yards of swamp and came under fire from light machine guns, LMGs, from the forward slopes of the spur. These LMGs were neutralised by artillery fire, but they were just the precursor of the Japanese defences on the spur. The Japanese had constructed pillboxes which protected the machine gunners inside from anything other than a direct hit. These pillboxes held up C Company for most of the day. It was only when Captain Sedgley's B Company, following up Simmons' success on the left, cleared two pillboxes and a field gun and then advanced down Linker Spur that the pressure on C Company was finally relieved. C Company recommenced their advance. The attack on Linker Spur had started at around 8.30 to 9 o'clock in the morning but it wasn't securely in Australian hands until 9.30 that night. By the end of the day, the brigade had established a beachhead 2,800 yards wide to a depth of 2,000 yards. The mud and stranded landing craft made the unloading of armour and field guns difficult. The thin strip of firm ground between the mud and the dunes meant there was very little space to gather assets and the tracks of the armour and engineer vehicles soon turned the area into a quagmire and it wasn't until a corduroy track could be made from felled timber that any sort of progress was made. The following days saw a stiffening in Japanese opposition and the line was advanced only slowly, with regular contact with entrenched Japanese. Each position had to be reduced individually, sometimes by frontal assault because the approaches were too narrow to allow any sort of flanking attack. At 6.45 on the morning of the 3rd of May, the 2nd 24th was in a position to attack the Tarakan airfield. Two platoons of Captain Travis's company advanced with support from a troop of tanks, machine guns and mortars. They advanced on either side of a road and the platoon on the left advanced between the road and a canal which was on their left. The Japanese had flooded the canal with oil and they now settled a light so that the left-hand platoon had to cross back over the road to avoid the thick black smoke. A minefield soon convinced the tanks to stay put and so the infantry sought a different avenue of approach only to find swamps and so they were temporarily held up. In the meantime, Captain Eldridge was ordered to take his company down the western slopes to try and link up with Travis. Engineers managed to clear the mines which had held up the tanks and Travis managed to get moving again. The two companies finally linked up at 3.30pm in a position overlooking the town of Ripon. Eldridge was then ordered to take Ripon. As the attack went in, 14 platoon was crossing a road which ran across the aerodrome. One of the troops witnessing the event described what happened next. Quote, As the platoon crossed the road, there were two enormous explosions and the platoon was blotted out by earth, dust and smoke. Great wooden beams about 15 feet long floated into the air, splintered and scattered everywhere. I saw one of these beams floating horizontally about 10 feet in the air, and up with it one of our company also in the horizontal. That man lives today. When everything subsided, there were only about five of the platoon left on their feet. End quote. The Japanese had fired two depth charges as the platoon was crossing the road. Those men of the 14th platoon, still able to advance, rejoined the attack, but heavy opposition forced the attackers to eventually withdraw. It wasn't until the 5th of May that another attack was put in to take Ripon. That day was characterised by a number of sharp engagements at various points of attack. The Japanese redirected troops effectively to counter each attack, inflicting casualties on the Australians, but taking heavy casualties themselves. 
It wasn't until 6pm that the airfield was taken and secured. However, the Japanese still held a number of positions in the high ground surrounding the airfield, particularly at Mount Appy, and snipers were proving to be a problem, and so the brigade headquarters retired back to the southern edge of the airstrip. Five days of heavy fighting had managed to secure only the first major objective. The town of Tarakan itself was still in Japanese hands, and the rush to seize the airfield as early as possible had necessitated leaving some pockets of resistance unsubdued. These pockets were now causing problems as they were sniping and machine-gunning troops moving along the main routes, including Anzac Highway. To keep the enemy troops from causing too much damage along the highway, tanks had been posted along the track to open up with their guns whenever a Japanese position exposed itself by firing. But this was only ever going to be a temporary solution. Those positions were going to have to be taken if the Australians were going to have any real freedom of movement. For Brigadier Whitehead, the most pressing objective was to secure the high ground overlooking the airfield. He ordered the 2nd 23rd Battalion to advance along the Snags track to take the ground between Mount Appy and a feature known as Janet. At the same time, the 2nd 24th was to push on towards the Uatta oil fields and the 2nd 48th would take the high ground north of Tarakan town as far as the Snags track. The 2nd 4th Commando Squadron would clear Tarakan Hill and advance towards Snags track. So by that description, you'd obviously come to the conclusion that Snags Track is a pretty central feature to this whole shebang. However, in all the amazingly detailed maps I have in my official history account, I can't find the Snags Track marked on any of them. My best guess is it runs from behind Tarragon Town to a point behind Mount Appy, at which point it does a 90 degree turn towards the mount. But I could be totally wrong about that. Air and artillery bombardment preceded these attacks. But when interrogating Japanese prisoners after the fighting had finished, apparently these did very little damage in that terrain. The rough nature of the terrain, with a seemingly infinite number of knolls, made it difficult for the aerial bombers to even identify which targets they were being directed to bomb. The steep angles of the terrain often meant the artillery couldn't get sufficient trajectory to put their shells onto the enemy. It appears the only weapon that did have an impact were the mortars. One of the prisoners estimated that 300 to 400 casualties were inflicted by mortar fire alone. The knolls, with tunnels and bunkers dug into them, made extremely effective defensive positions and it was clear the Japanese intended to make the full use of them. On a ridge known as Tiger, which ran from the town to the near the airfield, it was particularly well defended. On 7th of May, a company of the 2nd 23rd took the western edge of the ridge and pushed forward the next day, but they were then themselves pushed back by a determined counter-attack. It wasn't until engineers were able to repair a blown bridge on the 8th that armoured support was able to be brought into the fight and 200 yards of the snag track was secured. A long-range patrol from the 2nd 24th captured the town of Uata on the northwest coast on the 8th of May and progress was made by other 2nd 24th patrols into the central area. But also on the 8th, a nasty incident occurred. During the early morning of the 8th, a Japanese soldier crept into the main dressing station of the 2nd 11th Field Ambulance. He made his way unseen to under the bed of Lieutenant Freem of the 2nd 24th and attached an improvised bomb to his bed and then crept out again. Lieutenant Freem was killed in the explosion and a further two men were wounded. Now I don't care what justification you might like to try and make, the targeting of wounded men who are unable to defend themselves has got to be one of the most cowardly acts in war, no matter who inflicts it. It's incidents like this which caused many of the diggers to hold onto a hatred of all Japanese, many for the rest of their lives. The 2nd 4th Commandos had cleared the snags track as far as a feature known as Hague's. The terrain beyond this point was not suitable for tanks, 
but the commandos pushed forward on the 9th and were met with heavy fire and were unable to advance any further. Mortars lay down smoke to help the men withdraw, but the bomber crews in the circling aircraft thought this smoke was marking a Japanese position and dropped some bombs on the 2nd 4th. Fortunately, no casualties were incurred. The commandos dug in, occasionally troubled by the Japanese troops throughout the night, using 12-foot spears to harass the men. The squadron's diarist, rather laconically, stated, quote, All nerves on edge and men snatching sleep in the daytime. Morale of troops high but men tiring. Operational rations offer no invitation to eat well. End quote. And that typical soldiers, eh? Always commenting on the poor quality of the tucker, no matter what the situation. The other Australian unit in action over these days was the 2nd 3rd Pioneers. Pushing east from Tarakan Hill on the 7th of May, they were met with heavy fire in the region of Permusian. They charged forward and suffered one killed while company commander Captain Dunn and another man were wounded. A second attack was made with artillery support, but this was also beaten off by the Japanese. Deciding to think about the situation a bit more, Colonel Anderson, commanding officer of the 2nd 3rd, decided to spend the night in their current position and launch a more coordinated attack the next day. The plan was fairly simple and not altogether surprisingly resembled the tactics which the Japanese had used on their advance down the Kokoda track in 1942. One part of Anderson's force would engage the Japanese from the front, locking them in place, while a second force circled around the Japanese position to attack from behind. Led by Captain Hinksman, the attack was launched at 9am on the 8th. The platoon, which was assigned the frontal role, advanced about 50 yards further than they'd managed the day before when they'd met the opposition. And then they were fired upon and went to ground, returning fire and settling in for what would turn out to be a rather fruitless kind of a day. The encircling party tried to move through the very thick bush, but the necessity to hack their way through every yard meant they were only making about 200 yards in an hour. It soon became obvious they had no chance of making it to their allotted jump-off point before darkness, and so they turned around and headed back to their starting point. All in all, it was a wasted day for the second third. During the night of the 8th and 9th of May, Anderson had another think about the situation and decided to send a full company under Major Rosevere to undertake a wide outflanking movement to the left, as opposed to the right-hand side which had been attempted that day. While Rosevere was carrying out the movement, a heavy artillery barrage was dropped on an enemy bunker, scoring a direct hit. The troops inside the bunker, although stunned, were still able to fight. That was until Lance Corporal Pallister brought his Vickers gun forward and from a very exposed position poured fire into the bunker. He was eventually wounded, but his actions brought the rest of the Rosevere's company valuable time to organise an attack on the bunker. By midday, Rosevere had reached his objective and Hinksman was able to push on towards the track leading to the feature known as Helen. Throughout the 9th and 10th, Lieutenant Bethel led his platoon towards a feature overlooking Helen, manoeuvring around and capturing a number of defensive positions and establishing themselves in a strong position to support Hinksman's attack on the Helen feature. The estimated number of enemy troops on Helen was somewhat underestimated, and Hinksman's men came under very heavy fire, advancing only 50 yards. But rather than give up their gains, they dug in, with Bethel's platoon providing cover. But these two platoons had been fighting hard for three days, and Anderson gave the order for them to be relieved by two other platoons from Tarakan that night. The only casualty during the relief was Lieutenant Bethel. A sniper's bullet hit a grenade attached to his belt, causing it to detonate. He was seriously wounded, but survived. I don't know whether to say he was lucky or not. I mean, what are the chances of getting shot right in the grenade? You'd have to be unlucky. But then, a grenade, detonate on your belt and surviving, you've got to be pretty lucky, don't you? So the fight for Helen lasted until 15th of May. 
From the Japanese perspective, Helen was the last major feature before the ground flattened out towards the east coast. If the Australians could gain possession of that knoll and cut across to the coast, then the lower half of Tarakan Island would be cut off from the Japanese and secured. The Japanese had obviously decided they would defend this feature to the death. I won't give a blow-by-blow -blow description of the fighting because that'll keep us here all day. But I'll give one example of the type of fighting which was required to finally bring Helen under Australian control. During the initial assault, Corporal McKay's section was leading the attack and came under fire from three well-sighted positions at the top of a steep rise. McKay and Lance Corporal Reedy charged the first machine gun post, but as he arrived there, McKay slipped and fell into the post. A Japanese soldier tried to seize him, but McKay freed himself and bayoneted the soldier and then with Reedy's help, dispatched the rest of the crew. Reedy then provided covering fire while McKay charged another post which had overhead cover making it less likely that he would slip into it, but also making it harder to hit the occupants. He got close enough that he could throw a grenade through the firing slit and he silenced that machine gun. He then went back to Reedy and borrowed his own gun and charged towards the third post, firing as he went. He made it to the lip of the post where he was hit and killed. But he had done enough damage to the gun crew that the post was easily finished off. Reedy continued firing on another position until he too was wounded. As impressive as this action was, it only advanced the attack a few dozen yards. It was only with close air, mortar and artillery support that the Australians were eventually able to force the Japanese to withdraw and by the 16th of May, the 2nd 3rd had reached the mouth of the Yamal River on the east coast of Tarakan Island. The fighting had cost them 20 killed and 46 wounded. But of course that was just one attack. While the 2nd 3rd were doing their thing at Helen, the 2nd 24th was heavily engaged on Tiger. The main assault on Tiger began on the 10th of May and like Helen, was a series of hard-fought, localised battles against entrenched positions. Artillery was slightly more effective on Tiger, and a system was developed where the attacking troops would fire a flare into a troublesome spot, the artillery would pound the area, and just before the barrage lifted, the troops would charge in and occupy the feature before the enemy, who had fallen back for safety, could return. And on it went. After Tiger, there was Frieda. As the Australian advance continued, the Japanese resistance became more and more fanatical. After being forced off the feature on the 23rd of May, the Japanese launched a counter-attack to retake it from Lieutenant Tom Diver Derrick's platoon. The attack was repulsed, but not before two Australians had been killed and eight wounded, including Derrick. I won't go too much into Tom Derrick's story here because he will have an episode all of his own. But when news came the following day that he died from his wounds, the unit diarist recorded, quote, This news had a very profound effect on the whole battalion as he had become a legend and an inspiration to the whole unit. An original member, he had served with distinction through every campaign in which this battalion took part, to Brooke, Tel Elisa, El Alamein, Leigh, Finchhaven, Saddleburg and Tarakan. End quote. To my mind, nothing demonstrates the waste of lives at Tarakan better than the story of Tom Derrick. After fighting through all those battles which the diarist had mentioned, he'd earned the Victoria Cross at Saddleburg and he'd earned a battlefield commission in 1944. If anyone deserved to return home to post-war Australia and live a long, fulfilling life with a family and friends, it was Tom. Instead, he died on the 24th of May and is buried on Tarakan Island. The really sad part is, their fighting was just about done. It took another four weeks of fighting before Tarakan Island was finally secured, but as the fighting wore on, the Japanese resistance began to falter. With no reinforcements and no resupply, they were less and less able to mount a strong defence. But that doesn't mean it became easy for the Australians. The Japanese troops fully intended to die fighting 
and resisted every advance with everything they had available. So that's basically the first battle of the overall Borneo campaign. So I think we'll leave it there for this episode, and we'll take care of Balakpapan and North Borneo in the next episode. But before we go, it's worth considering the end result of Tarakan. The main objective was to capture the airfield and the oil production facilities for use in future operations. But the airfield, although taken in the first couple of days, was never used in support of the Borneo campaign, let alone a future operation in the war. There had been so much damage inflicted on it by the preparatory bombardment and the artillery support that it was essentially useless and would be for at least four to five months until it could be repaired. And many of the oil fields had been destroyed by the Japanese before the troops had even landed. You have to ask yourself the question, was this really such a vital operation that it warranted the loss of 860 casualties of which 225 were killed? Personally, I don't think so. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it'd be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.